Going home, going home, England's going home. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCourt. That sound you can hear right now is the rest of Europe laughing its ass off. Not necessarily at my singing, but at England becoming the first country to exit Europe twice in the space of seven days. Four years ago, Iceland were ranked 133rd in the world, but on Monday night, they did what many around the world want to do right now and hit England right where it hurts. Here to talk about all of that and much more is Paddy Higgs. Hello. A very smug-looking Nico Durbin. Hello. And transformed from phone talker to a real-life fleshy person, it's Lewis Ambrose. Hello. Uh, well, Lewis, this morning, it's the morning after, the night before. How are you feeling? Are you sure England played last night? <laughs> what I really want to know is how you were feeling going into the game. Because I say this because having looked at a lot of the commentary around and a lot of the pre-match analysis from England, there was a sense of it was England's almost destiny to just walk over Iceland. Um, personally, I didn't see it. That, I was pretty sure England were going to win, but I didn't see it that way because it's England. So anything can happen and we would find the most spectacular way to go out. Like, with five minutes to go last night, I was pretty convinced we were going to score an equaliser only to go out on penalties because um, that's the sort of thing England do. But yeah, there was pretty much an assumption from everyone back home and most of the media that England would be playing France in the quarterfinal. This is crazy because, I mean, this Iceland team has shown throughout this tournament that they can't cope with the big boys. And they, as they showed in qualifications, well, they beat Holland home and away. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, tough debut for Lewis. Let's make that clear. He's yeah. come in the morning <laughs> after. Um, but uh, I think I was I was watching this with Nico actually last night. And I think if you'd, if you'd turned that, that game on black and white and you'd brought a, someone in who didn't know anything about football, they would have had no idea which team was meant to be dominating the other. Um Iceland and, and England, it was, a, it was a tough, tight game. There is no reason why England should be in that sort of fight, though. It's, it's, it's bizarre. I want to read you a quick quote from Alan Shearer last night. After the match, he said, That was the worst performance I've ever seen from an England team. We were outfought, we were outthought, we were outbattled, and we were totally hopeless for 90 minutes. He's right, isn't he? Yeah, it's almost a bit arrogant, you know. Iceland did a pretty good job. It was not just England being so bad. I mean, yes, England should win. And it was a pretty pathetic performance from England. But at the same time, I mean, England is not the only team that would struggle against Iceland. No. Um, but it is, unfortunately, the last team that will lose against Ireland during this tournament. What about... Um, anybody want to pinpoint exactly where it went wrong? Lewis, maybe? Um, it, so the problems from the group stage haven't been ironed out, so... England, you would expect a, a team with better players or bigger players to, when they're one nil or one goal down with not too long to go, to at least be building pressure on the edge of the box, keeping the ball um, and creating something and making Iceland panic. England couldn't even get the ball into the Iceland half. And it's something that happened in the group stage where England had a lot of the ball but not in the right places. England have no idea how to progress possession up the pitch. It was a problem against Russia, against Slovakia and against Wales where England had all of the ball but no chances. And it's the same again and you'd have to say it's a coaching floor and a tactical floor because the players are good enough. Yesterday was clearly not a match that was decided in central midfield. You know, it was. I didn't understand why Hodgins would bring in a new central midfield at halftime while he has Rashford, for example, outside, you know. Mm -hmm. It's one of those matches that you can actually turn around with one-on-ones where you have the better, technically better players. 
um, and you have good finishers at the end of the day, you just need to push for it and you have to create chances, you know. And they didn't go for it. They played those long balls. They all dreaming they were Tony Crows or Iniesta, but they're not. They're not. It was so slow from from England in transition. I mean, um, there's been a bit of criticism about Rooney in particular, but it wasn't just him last night. I think it took until about the 60th minute when Vardy came on, or I can't remember exactly what minute, when Vardy came on and Kane put a little... ball through to him and the, you know, Vardy was dispossessed and it went out for a corner I believe but that was one of the few times when England had actually transitioned quickly and straight away they were infinitely more dangerous. This wasn't an Iceland team that sat backs to the wall and played on the edge of their own box. They they actually pressed high up the pitch. They pressed higher up the pitch than you'd expect um, and yeah England moved the ball way too slowly to, to combat that. There was no movement, there was no combination between players and it showed. Paddy, Nico, what's the sort of view now of? Okay, I'm biased, so I can't, I can't obviously say coming from Ireland. But what's the sort of view of England now from from outside? From the how, how are they seen? Is it a bit of a joke? <laughs> yes. Um, well, it's a bit of a joke. It's it's very ironic that they're uh, kicked out of the tournament after this match. Obviously, the joke for me is just that. You know, they, they won against Germany before this tournament. It was a friendly, yes, but it's just that little bit of arrogance, I'm sorry to say so, that is coming out really clearly these days uh, from uh, over England. And I don't know where they get this arrogance from because like that golden generation that came before, they've never done anything on an international stage. I think Lewis was pointing out beforehand that they've won six knockout games at international tournaments since 1966. But they're not backing it up on any stage. Never a European Championship game, knockout game outside of England. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, there's a there's a degree of Schadenfreude with with England, of course. Everyone everyone loves. I'm biased too. Yeah, everyone loves. I'm Australian. I mean, yeah. Um, everyone loves seeing them fail. Um, but for them to do that in in that way last night, and again, it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, totally all their way. Iceland, as you said, played a, played a terrific game. Have played really well this tournament. But uh, let's face it. I mean, on paper, England should be winning that, and um, I think that's why everyone was who's not English at least, was uh, had a little bit of self-satisfaction this morning. Do you know what my favourite moment of the entire night was? And I don't know if you've all seen this, but Steve McLaren on Sky TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see this, Nico? Yeah, yeah. Paddy, did you want to break it down for him? Uh, I almost don't want to ruin it. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm going to ruin it for him. Yeah. <laughs> so McLaren was on Sky TV last night, former England, former England coach, of course. And he was talking when the scores were 1-1. And he was talking, he was saying, uh, you know, Sturridge and Walker are causing all kinds of problems down the wing. Iceland aren't able to deal with this. This is the perfect response. They're dominating Iceland. Iceland just have that big lad up front. And then all of a sudden, McLaren's face just turns to stone and Iceland are 2-1 up. And that big lad up front was the one who scored as well. (laughs) He must have been watching a different game though too. I mean, it was almost like he was talking like he was still coach, like defending if, the team. If Stephen McLaren's watching a different game to what's happening on the pitch, it explains a lot of his coaching career. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just flat out lies. Yeah. that's like There's no way it was yeah. any way true. Yeah, it was like Boris Johnson wrote his football <laughs> speech. <laughs> <laughs> topical, Paddy, topical. <laughs> and just speaking of McLaren, I don't know if anybody remembers uh, 2007 when Croatia ended England's hopes of playing in Euro 2008. Do you remember that, Lewis? Yeah, of course. It really reminded me of that game. Really reminded me. And coincidentally, the last time 
England conceded two goals in the opening 18 minutes of a match was against Croatia. But that same that same bad attitude that they had that night, the presumption they just had to turn up the overhyped players, this average clueless manager who didn't know his best side of formation. It just a lot of struck me as a lot of parallels between the two is what I would say. Um, shall we have a kind word about Iceland then? Because they were brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's so much passion in their game, and and when you see them, I mean, everybody is happy after a match and they won and so on, but. You can just feel what's what that means for them. Like this is the biggest achievement of their career, you know. Um, and even a good Jonsson who have had some achievements in his career, right? This is so special for them. They're heroes, full stop. And I'm very happy to to have such a story um, in in this tournament. It's it's real good. It's can, can do we think that they can win it? I mean, uh, you know, no one thought. Greece could could win it back in 2004. Iceland would be a, a step further again. But, I mean, it almost feels like a bit of a Leicester thing, you know, like we get to January and like, oh, they can't win it, but they're doing so well, you know. And then, oh, shit, it's uh, it's March. Oh, they're still there. But th- they'll fail, they'll fail. It, does it feel a bit like that? I'm not sure. I just I have a feeling France will just be, having seen how France came on against Ireland sure. in the second half yeah. uh, of the other you know, round of 16 match, I have a feeling France just might just... They're obviously a much better side than England. And yeah. They'll have too much attacking talent for them. Absolutely. If yeah. Iceland were in the other side of the draw, you'd actually probably back them to have a shot at the final now. Mm. But yeah, they're going to have to beat France and then the winner of Germany and Italy. It's. I could see them giving France a real, a real game though. France, like like England to lesser extent, seem to have really struggled to break sides down so far. Um, and that happened, like you said, the first half against Ireland again. Mm-hmm. Um and Iceland are well drilled. They are passionate, but they're also organised. It's intelligent. And I could see France struggling against them a lot more than people might expect. This is one of the things I also wanted to highlight about Iceland is how well drilled they they are yeah. and how tight that midfield and the forward and defence are all packed together. That takes a huge amount of work on the training ground and a huge amount of mental energy and physical energy, and it's absolutely remarkable. Well, Lars Lagerbach's no novice to, to the coaching mm-hmm. um, game. Of course, he's been around. He's immensely um, experienced in, in international and in, in club football as well. So I w- actually didn't expect much better, particularly when you've got a, a squad that doesn't have a lot of standout talent compared to a lot of its rivals. You would expect a team like that with a coach like him and to be absolutely well-drilled but I think they've even you know even more than probably what we expected and Lars has never lost to England there you go I, yeah I think he's played them six or seven he times he should coach him actually <laughs> yeah, <he hates> someone. <laughs> there, was, there was also an Icelandic general election last week and he got 20 to 30 votes I can't remember how many despite <laughs> not being up for election yeah. hey speaking of managers Roy Hodgson is gone and I think this won't come as a shock to anybody but what came as a bit of a shock to me was that he was kept on after the last World Cup I mean, it was an absolute disaster. They didn't. They were out after two games, and I've nothing against the man. I've met him once. He seems like a nice dude, but I can't say I know him. But he's an average Premier League manager, and England need a lot more than that. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, after Capello, it feels like there's a real reluctance to go foreign and I'm not sure why because there isn't a good English manager there isn't a top English manager there's nobody that stands out but it feels like there's a big reluctance to go foreign now I think the tabloids might have a bit of a problem mm. with that if that were to happen now um, 
but if you don't go foreign, there's not much of an option. Well, I'd say in the current climate, I think it would be hilarious if they appointed a foreign manager. Well, Gareth Southgate's <laughs> well, yeah. the favourite, isn't well, he, at the moment? Yes, so, yeah. Southgate. I've got the favourites for you right yeah. here. Oh, let, me, let me read it out for you. Yeah. Gareth Southgate, yep. Eddie Howe, Alan Pardew, Brendan Rogers, <laughs> Gary Neville, Alan Shearer, who's already declared himself in. I don't know what he's basing that on whatsoever. And at 40 to 1, Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs. I think John Terry was on a list as well. <laughs> Someone said Ian Holloway and John Terry is some sort of co-training uh, duo. That, that would be an interesting time. Uh, the only name, uh, <laughs> Brendan Rodgers has just signed a contract to manage Celtic. That's not going to happen. Uh, so, yeah. um, I think England probably wanted Brendan Rodgers. There was talk last week that England had sounded him out but he's just signed a contract to, to manage someone else. Um, I think the only name there that stands out as a potential England manager is probably Eddie Howe, but it's way too soon in his career. Yeah. He's not done anywhere near enough, um, and giving him the job now could wreck it. You know, it, Ideally, he could be a candidate in five to ten years, but right now it seems like madness. Glenn Hoddle also throwing his name <laughs> into the ring as well. Yeah. When we're talking about these names, I mean, they're, they're big names in English football, but it, it doesn't show a lot of progression, does it? It just shows where the game is at coach-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I I saw something this morning that England have a fraction of the number of coaches qualified UEFA coaches as Spain and Germany and Mm -hmm. the cost to get to that level and the coaching badges is about three, four, five times as much in England as it is in other European countries. I don't really understand why. It doesn't make any sense and there's a massive lack of top candidates, top coaches in England now. And that's why England are suffering at major tournaments. It's a big reason. Yeah. Well, yep. The whole English football is completely gentrified. I mean, that's it. If you look at the Premier League and all that and see all their talents playing next to superstars and so on. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't look like the, the <clears throat> wearing the three lines on their chest is giving them a boost. It's almost just like a hurdle. Why are English players so afraid of playing abroad and broadening their yeah. horizons? Yeah. You look at every other major nation has huge stars playing in England or in Germany at Bayern or elsewhere, PSG, whatever. And it obviously, you, you learn something. It, football's played differently in Spain. It's played differently in Germany than it is to England. It's much more tactical, especially in those two countries. And English players aren't going abroad and learning anything. They're not good enough, though. That's the problem. I mean, out of that team last night, pick any of the substitutes I'm, I'm that you want. They should be, I'm not saying they should be playing for Real Madrid or Barcelona. Right, but there's so many... There's, the, the, the problem is with them. I mean, how many of that squad would actually make it onto a Real Madrid or a Bayern Munich or a Barcelona? Pro- probably one, two at most. Right. I'm not saying they should play for Real Madrid or yeah. Barcelona. Why, why are players playing for, for, well, teams that are going to finish in the Europa League places in England rather than going to well, Valencia or... Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think we all know them. I think we all know the answer. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at some of the British who, who played in the sort of 80s and 90s. I mean, they were playing at Sampdoria and... and Hamburg. And, yeah, exactly, Hamburg yeah. And, and teams like that. And, you know, it... It, I don't think it's all, just a tactical thing now either. I think it's almost a, a maturity thing too to, to have these guys over there and to take them out of this bubble and to put them somewhere where they're a bit uncomfortable and they haven't got all the creature comforts that they need. And, and there was a little bit of criticism about the attitude of some of the English players as well. Joe Hart in particular was singled out this morning, but apparently only two English players talked to the press on their way out of the game last night. And I think it sort of shows that uh, there is a bit of maturity lacking in that squad. Well, I think there's no coincidence Instance that Eric Dyer, who was footbally educated abroad, was one of England's best players Correct. at yeah. the at the Euros. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll move on from from England a little bit. They weren't the only team with a with a performance to remember 
last night. There was also Italy's win over Spain. To put this in some context, that was the first time that Spain had lost a Euro final game by more than one goal since 1988. <laughs> and of course, more context, there was that final four years ago and the 4 0 hammering. So let's tip a cap to Italy, shall we? Yeah. Anybody want to? Um, I was more surprised by Spain's uh, bad performance than uh, Italy's good performance. Italy plays exactly, and, and we talked about it last week, Italy plays Iceland just one league higher, just even better with better individual players. But they're tactically very, very strong. They have a very, very good manager. And everybody knows what to do and does it. No experiments, that's it. Um, whereas Spain just seemed tired. They didn't have the last fight in them. Um, and they were maybe a little bit unlucky in the moments and, and Italy just scored. And then there was no way back for, for Spain into that match. Speaking of tired, it says Fabregas. He looks shot. I think it's the same case as Rooney. He's just been playing too long. They've both yeah. been playing since they're like 16. They're now 29, 30. Just too many games, too much too much football for them. It's 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 something I saw on, on Twitter as well, those two being compared. I think, you know, Fabregas, Fabregas really hasn't played terrifically well for about... Uh, 15 months now, I think, since you know the season before last, um, and I, you know, I think that the Spain probably needs to pull this nucleus out a little bit. They've probably hoped that this could get them over the line in this tournament, um, and they've had some wonderful players that are still there. Some, of course, have departed, but it's probably time for a for a transition now and, and time for a change. And I think you, you know, we saw a couple of guys, Vasquez, come on, uh, came on, and that was quite positive. Um, I think they need a few more guys like that to look at. Is it the end of the Spain era then? Dalbosca said no, but I mm. firmly believe that it is. It, it's not the end of the way Spain have been playing football, but Spain don't play football like they did two years ago or four years ago anymore. And there's too much talk that it's the death of tiki-taka, which is something Spain have never played anyway. Um, the death of passing, the death of possession, and it's all nonsense because it's not. Uh, there are different ways to play football and Spain aren't playing that way the way that they did two, four or six years ago. Yeah. Take that, Spain haters, huh? Hey, um, Nico. Yes. The reward for Italy winning <laughs> is, a, is, is a game against Germany. Rewarding. We'll, uh, rewarding. In, we'll, we'll talk about the Italy-Germany game in a moment, but let's just, let's just have a quick word about that Slovakia game because before Iceland's performance um, against England, it, to me it was one of the most impressive ones of the, of the tournament so far. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm biased. We all know that. Say <laughs> <laughs> that every week. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all know that. But I, I agree. I agree. Um, it was the kind of match that we have been waiting for here in Germany. We were confident so far, you know, because we didn't concede any goal before that match either. Um, but we were missing that last 20%, of which we have seen, I'd say, 15 So. That match of Germany against Slovakia was Germany at 95%. Um, at the end of the day, we still we missed a penalty. Um, we scored after um, um, uh, standard situations and so on, which is good, you know. But I think um, 100% would have been if we scored two or three goals out of just out of the, the running match, like the 2 0. I mean, that was extraordinary by Draxler. Gomez stood exactly where he has to stand. Um, so. 
those kind of chances, that's that's how we're going to be successful, where we need to be successful if we want to win this tournament. So and it's always good if you have a little bit more um, um, to to develop during a tournament. You know, it's never good to to play the first match at 100% and keep that level. You have to build up that form. And Lowe has stumbled across the, his right team now, hasn't he? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, Traxler was one of the best players. If I would have to pick, it'd be Traxler, Boateng again, um, Kroos. Kroos so was superb. I really enjoyed watching him. That that access was really, really good. Um, but there's also all the other players. That there's nobody who did a bad job, uh, I think. At the same time, Slovakia was not as good as expected. Um, they weren't as uh, aggressive as expected, to be honest. Um, and from the beginning, they didn't really get the chance to, to counterattack. So we'll, we'll see. Italy will certainly be a different kind of match. One final point before we get into that. I was impressed by how mature uh, Kimmich's performance was. I thought, yeah. was, I thought he was really good down the right. Really good and sober performance by Kimmich. Yeah. Just. Hovedes won't be getting in anytime soon. No, not before the 80th minute. And <laughs> nor, nor will Mario Goetze. Poor Mario, eh? This is just like 2014 all over again. Yeah. Goetze starts with all the confidence in the world from Leuven, and by the, uh, by the time <laughs> the tournament gets into the serious phases, he's back on the bench, which you can expect him to come on and score the win in the final if, if things <laughs> continue Show this way. Show the world you're better than Ronaldo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, okay. Get, let's get to the trader topic. We all know the facts by now. Germany have never, ever, ever, ever beaten Italy. Um, in a competition. In a competition, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Small, small mercies. <laughs> um, so you're a bit nervous. I am. I am. I have respect. Let's put it that way. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how we played against them in the last tournaments four years ago, what six years ago, and so on. Um, doesn't really matter at this point. Um, we are the better team. Um, I'm confident. Um, it's going to be hard work. Um, it's highly likely to to be sitting there for more than 90 minutes um, and that's going to be stressful but at the end of the day we're going to have the luck on our side this time knock on wood um, I'm going to be a happy man next week again Paddy are you as confident as Nico is? I don't I don't think anyone's as confident as Nico is. To be <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I had a chat to Uli Hesse on the weekend, and, and he said, um, as long as Germany uh, don't face uh, f uh, was it Italy or, Italy or Spain, Spain yeah. in the quarterfinals, they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be a terrific encounter. I think um, really looking forward to see how Germany deal with this supposed bogey the monkey on their back um, because uh, this is a pretty mature Germany team they're very they're very strong mentally um, but this is something that they're going to be reading on every front page of the newspaper they pick up until now and, and that game I think if there's going to be a change and that would be that would be a love move if there's going to be a change he's going to bring Schweinsteiger for Kidira how would that be I think that's that's I think that's a sensible change I wouldn't I, I couldn't argue against that yeah but, between Schweinsteiger and Kroos, who can run? Uh, yeah, but they'll, they'll have the ball. They should be able to control the game. It's a, it's a good call by Lewis, to be honest. I, I think 
Sammy's been very good and probably been overlooked. His form's probably been overlooked a little bit because Cruz has been so terrific. But I think the you know, like like you said, um, between Schweinsteiger and Cruz, they seem to be gliding around more than they do running. And, yeah, and just, Sammy's acceleration can really break up that line. I, you'd worry about Italy in transition if I think if those two partnered each other in midfield. Yes, and I I don't want him to change. I don't want him to change. I I remember four years ago uh, against Italy um, when Löw overthought playing against Italy and yeah. he changed and he had no hold on Perlo and they destroyed us. So I just want him to be confident to understand that we're the favorite in this match and that we don't have to adjust our team for Italy. If anybody has to adjust their team, it's Italy playing us. Download One Football, the most comprehensive football app in the world. Now on Monday morning, Leo Messi sent us penalty high into the night sky and reacted to the ensuing Copa America victory for Chile by announcing his retirement for international football. Joining us on the line to talk about that is our South American friend, Daniel Cadena Jordan from Mia Bundesliga. Daniel, were you as shocked as the rest of us at Messi's announcement? Yes, I mean, uh, the best player of the world retiring from his national squad is always uh, not only news, it's you know bad news for anyone who's not only a fan of Argentina, but also the sport in general, I think. What, what was what was prompted it? Was it the crushing defeat after crushing defeat? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it might be frustration. It might have been a spur of the moment type of thing. But at the same time, a player like Lionel Messi doesn't go into tournaments thinking about retiring unless he actually means it. Um, I mean, Argentina lost the, 20, the 2014 World Cup final. He lost the 2015 final of the Copa America against Chile, of all teams. And the 2016 repeat against Chile, the, the defeats, three defeats in a row in three years, uh, in which Messi played a big part in not winning the title. So I think uh, the whole frustration issue is, you know, maybe one of the of the main concerns on why Messi decided to say what he said. Danny, um one thing we're probably a bit removed of is the the amount of pressure that Messi probably is under in Argentina and in South America. Can you maybe give us a few insights on that? I mean, what's it actually like for him um, in his homeland when it comes to football? Well, Argentina is, I think, by far the most passionate country in the world in football, even more than Brazil, I, I dare to say. Um, and if not, well, they're up there with Brazil, definitely. And uh, for a player like Messi or any Argentinian player to dress a national squad is sort of like the quill of an Englishman to be knighted. It's, it's that important. It's, it's being the chosen one. It's being part of a very um, reduced circle of players that actually makes it to the national side. And to be as relevant internationally as Messi has been, um, well, you're part of a more exclusive elite that where I think only players like Messi and, Mar- and Maradona belong nowadays. So not only is he relevant, and he, and it, but he's also, I'd say, a historic figure of the team. And, uh, of course, the pressure of um, a very you know, football lobbying nation as Argentina kind of goes along with that. And uh, it's the sort of pressure that should add up to a player to the point of, you know, having it in the back of his head constantly of whether or not I'm going to perform with my national side. Uh, what's been the reaction in Argentina and across South America? Well, it's been a um, shock for the most part. I mean, nobody expected Messi to say what he said after the final. Um, but at the same time, most people are just well, hoping that he that he's going to, you know, retract and take it back because... Well, quite frankly, nobody would want to imagine Argentina without Messi, knowing that Messi still has a good five, six years ahead of him in his football career. So, yeah, they see it as something that could have been avoided, as something that, um, that you know, isn't necessary at the point. And 
maybe in the end it could help relieve a little bit of the pressure off of him and trans- and, and pass it towards other members of the team or the team in and of itself. Uh, of course, there's also talk of Aguero, Mascarano and Di Maria going as well. Is there any truth to that at all, do you think? I, don't, I think it's mostly hearsay. Um, I haven't I haven't read any articles of them uh, admitting or saying that they want to leave the national side. If they do, it'd be it would just add to the shame. But in the end, uh, I think Argentina, with or without Messi or without Larezzi or without Aguero or any of those guys, they have a good enough side to to remain relevant uh, in spite of the losses. Um, however, it would be a shame to see players of that quality of that uh, size, let's put it that way, uh, lose. Sort of like the the motivation to keep on you know dressing up with uh, with with Argentina's colors and playing for the country. Uh, that, I mean, despite having all those pairs, they weren't good enough to uh, to beat Chile in the final, though. Eh? Uh, were were Chile the yeah. rif- were Chile the rightful winners in the end? Do you think? I don't know because it really was a weird Copa America for Chile. I mean, they qualify after playing 11 minutes of stoppage time against Bolivia, which you know in any other, any circumstance would be frowned upon, and then they just have this amazing run where they beat Mexico seven nil. They take down. Uh, but pretty much every single rival they had, and they meet Argentina in a game that were, I think, the main, let's say, like the main actor, the main responsible for the result might have been the referee and not the teams in, in themselves. I mean, the referee kicks out two players, wrongfully kicks out two players in the first half, and that kind of conditioned the game for it to be, uh, well, I'd say even lethargic at some point. It was, it was kind of like pointless running. Uh, during certain spells of the game, and obviously that influenced uh, not only what Chile could aspire to, because they're good at, at uh, you know playing mind games at, at their rivals, but Argentina could have lost a bit of their of their win there. So maybe if Chile was the rightful winner, I'm not sure, but they certainly made it to the final after not only controversy but also really good results in in, in the second stage of the tournament. Where are they going to rank in the in the history of South American sides? Because they've won the Copa America twice now. They got to the last sixteen, I think, in the last in the last World Cup, only to be knocked out on penalties by Brazil. Claudio Bravo won the the Golden Gloves. Vargas was the top scorer, and Sanchez was named the top player. That's that's pretty impressive, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely a great squad. They're full of of young, vigorous talents, and uh, both the first Chilean team to ever, first Chilean generation to ever win the Copa America. So. Um, they they will go down in history as that as the first Chilean team to actually win the thing and uh, not only to win it once but win it twice back to back, which is you know under any circumstance a really tough feat to achieve. Uh, we were, when we were talking to you before uh, the Copa America kicked off, we were um, saying that Jurgen Klinsmann said his side would get to the semi final, and I remember well at least myself being a bit skeptical about that. They did it. Uh, so how I mean how would you assess their performance? That's that's got to be good, right? Yeah, I mean, for you know, for American standards, it's pretty good. Being a top four team in the in the Copa America, of course, is is something a country like the United States that really doesn't have the background of of good um, performances in this cup. Uh, you know, it's definitely an upgrade, and it's something the United States should really should really be proud of. And uh, the fact that it did in home soil just adds, I think, to the well, to the momentum that Clemson's kind of gotten going within the team, and uh, it helps forget some of the mishaps on, in recent months that the team has had in the qualifying campaign for the World Cup. That was Daniel Cadena Jordan from Mia Bundesliga. Would Messi have retired anyway if they had won? I was, I was uh, thinking about that myself. <laughs> um, I'm going to say no, he would not. He would not have. What do you guys think? I mean, I think with 
the question I asked Danny about the the pressure that that Messi would be under, um, you know, and back in his homeland, I actually think that maybe he was thinking about this before. I mean, it's he's he's the one that everyone puts their hopes on. They've got players like Aguero and Higuain and Mascherano and, and guys like that, but it the buck stops with with Messi. Um, what I would say is that I've been to Argentina, beautiful country. I've actually been to where Messi is from. A little place called Rosario, a couple of hours north mm-hmm. of um, of Buenos Aires, and the amount of love they have for Diego Maradona is unbelievable. Like it's on, it's not on a scale we can possibly uh, imagine, and there's a lot of pressure on on Messi to be Maradona. Yeah, and it's it's just unreal. I mean, they have a church of Maradona. Yeah, that's, that's something you, else, isn't it? You can just imagine. That most of the time when Lionel Messi has to think about going back to Argentina to play in front of all those fans, as much of, a, of an honour as it is, he, there would also be a, a degree of, of trepidation every time um, he, because there's just so much pressure on him. He's never played in Argentina and I think that hinders him as well. He hasn't got fans from taking some club to glory there. Um, he probably feels let down. He played amazingly. He, he there was some people who thought he didn't serve to get player of the tournament. He played amazingly at the last World Cup um, and couldn't carry them over the line pretty much on his own. Um, and he's not carried, but he's taken Argentina to a third final in a row again this summer. He probably feels let down. Um, but had he won it, I don't think he'd... Yeah, you know, had he won it, there's a, there's a World Cup in two years and I think he'd have really set his sights on one more shot. OK, that's all from us today. My thanks to Paddy, Nico, Lewis... Danny and our producer Damien go to iTunes download the podcast subscribe to the podcast and while there you should download OneFootball too you can also get in touch with us via SoundCloud Twitter and Facebook at OneFootball thanks for listening Listener.